Hello, and welcome to Real Talk About Real Identity from Axiom. This podcast is devoted to important identity trends and the convergence of ad tech and martech. I'm Kyle Holloway, your podcast host, and I'm joined by our co-host, Dustin Rainey. Real Talk About Real Identity is focused on exploring the convergence and related disruption of martech and ad tech seen from an identity practitioner's lens. Dustin, you know, it seems that identity is a theme in so many areas. You know, recently I had a chance to sit down with my kids and watch the latest installment of the Spider-Man franchise, Spider-Man No Way Home. And while I love a good superhero action movie, you know, I was struck by the continued storyline of the multiverse and the interconnected identities of Spider-Man. I have to say, I thought they did a masterful job of weaving, you know, the different Spider-Man franchises together in a somewhat harmonious way, and even bringing closure to various plots from across the three sub-franchises. Now, I feel like in many ways, this mirrors the challenges we're seeing as MarTech and AdTech continue to converge. It's like we have our own set of the multiverse, not to be confused also with the emerging metaverse, which will have a challenge of its own and will be worthy of a future podcast discussion. You know, our offline identities are related to our online identities and digital identities, but they each have a life of their own. We still change addresses, names, phone numbers in the terrestrial world, and simultaneously constantly add email addresses, device IDs, and any number of other digital identifiers. So when MarTech and AdTech were siloed and somewhat independent, these challenges could be managed within the silo. However, the challenges are now being compounded by the fact that our identities are colliding as offline and online experiences become integrated. Consumer expectations continue to evolve and that seamless engagement is becoming the expected standard. So just like the Marvel team had a challenge trying to connect three different Spider-Man identities and stories into a cohesive storyline, brands are facing the same challenge of trying to bring the various customer identities together across the enterprise. So once again, you know, fact and fiction are not too far apart. Totally agree, Kyle. Um, also had a chance to watch the latest Spider-Man and like you, was really blown away uh, with how they used the the multiverse to bring that continuity across such a long and complex storyline. I mean, we're talking six movies spanning 20 years. And let me state it for record that Kyle Holloway was the first to bring up the metaverse on Real Talk, <laughs> yeah. uh, which, which of course is a term being used to describe the massively scaled and, and interoperable network of 3D virtual worlds within the constructs, but not really limited to what is, or many consider internet 3.0. So just as we're peaking and maybe even heading into the trough of disillusionment in the cookie-less world hype cycle, as Gartner likes to call it, Facebook's rebranding of Meta has ignited a new hype cycle. And as Kyle said, you'll certainly hear us discuss uh, how identity will play a key role in driving these immersive experiences with brands in future episodes. But let me waste no more time. We are honored today to have a truly esteemed guest with us. Uh, we're excited to introduce Axiom's CEO, Chad Engelgal, as our featured guest today. Chad has a tremendous background in the mad tech industry, where he's played a number of roles across product, sales, and leadership in technology, data, and identity. Chad, I want to welcome you to our podcast, and it's a true honor to have you with us today. All right. Thank you, Dustin. Great to see you. Thank you, Kyle. Good to see you as well today. Yeah. Hey, welcome. Chad, why don't you start by giving us a snapshot of your background that led you to your role as CEO at Axiom? I appreciate that. Before I answer, since you all kicked off uh, 
the multiverse and Spider-Man. Definitely been a, a Spider-Man <laughs> fan for years and years and years. And I think it absolutely, Spider-Man in and of himself, as one of many characters, of course, the Marvel Universe has a key area about identity and how we should think about it in that not only is Spider-Man Spider-Man, he is more importantly Peter Parker. But he is seen as two different individuals. And if you think about how he relates contextually, he's also the significant other, a.k.a. boyfriend of Mary Jane and the you know, nephew but son of Aunt May. And so it just talks about the dynamic nature of who we are as human beings and that we can't really be defined by a singular identity. And that we should be empowered to choose our identity and how we relate to the world in the identities that we relate to most, whether that's as a father, uh, like myself, or as a son, or as a friend, as a family member, uh, as a business person, or even as we've been talking about for over a decade as a team, the right to be anonymous when we choose to be so, especially in worlds such as a metaverse uh, or the internet itself. So you know, I love this topic of identity. I've spent 25 years in high tech working on technical solutions to create better outcomes for businesses. A lot of that spent in the area of marketing solutions and have loved all the work that I've done in product and engineering around identity. So I love seeing innovation manifest itself uh, in solving customer problems and creating value and value exchanges between people and businesses. So that's just a little background of what I've been up to for 25 plus years. Yeah, great. And uh, yeah, I love that point about uh, Spider-Man and Peter Parker and and even the anonymous aspect of all that. And it really is translatable into where we are today with brands and, and with the consumer. So you talked 25 years. So a lot has changed since merge purge days and everything. And so where do you see identity in the next three to five years? You know, we've been in this wave of change. Where do you see it heading? Well, I will absolutely think that identity and, and where it's transformed today from, as you said, merge purge to a phase where the craze was master data management that cut not only across the information you have about people, but the information you have about products, vendor relationships, et cetera, into the digital ecosystem, which is so dependent upon the exchange of identity in order to create performance-based marketing. Identity, I think, is moving rightfully so into an area where it is critical to C-level executives and especially the CMO because it is the backbone of what fuels customer experience. We all know that improving customer experience by any incremental amount creates massive financial benefits for companies because it's much easier to retain customers and make them more profitable than it is to find new ones. And so how it manifests itself for what you do on owned property and because the changes in the ad tech ecosystem, how we will interoperate across the advertising ecosystem, especially the addressable advertising ecosystem, it is absolutely at the forefront of businesses strategy to understand that to work with partners because you cannot solve it alone in a vacuum and to understand the complexities of how the ecosystems operate and the regulations that are being put on it so it is a fascinating future we have in store for us in the next three years we'll see a lot of change for sure right and you mentioned the c-suite and so when you think about C-suite, and obviously you have a lot of interactions with, you know, top level brands and, and their C-suites, 
where do you think they are from a sense of readiness around identity? You know, they're thinking, have they progressed? Are they kind of up to speed with where things are today? And then what are those key things that you want to place in front of them as kind of top of mind? It's a great question. At this point, what I see across a variety of verticals are there's the data rich and there's the data poor. And as it relates to the ability to recognize and interact directly with consumers. And it's primarily because the decisions on distribution that companies have taken. And so if you think about large manufacturers, uh, CPG companies, et cetera, their business models have been dependent upon supply chains and distribution through many grocers, retail chains, and even online companies now. And they've been disintermediated from the customers, so they've never really had to worry about collecting consumer information and really empowering a customer experience. Over the last two years, though, whether it's CPG brands, whether it's quick-serve restaurants, whether it's even grocery stores who are trying to move beyond just a loyalty card where each and every one of us knows if you ever forget your number or your card, they just stick another one in the system for you. It's become imperative to collect first-party data and control that data for compliance reasons. And identity in and of itself is at the heart of customer experience. And so to me, this is all tying back where I talk to executives and I see global pitches happening where some of the world's largest CPG brands now have specific initiatives to create identity graphs that house not only hundreds of millions, but potentially a billion plus consumers and pivoting to a direct relationship, just as many quick serve restaurants have over the pandemic, where we have really leaned into ordering on our mobile apps, interacting with brands who historically wouldn't have a direct relationship. We'd go through the drive through we'd walk in their doors and walk out with goods and they wouldn't even know who we are. So there's a dynamic change happening with digital transformation, the desire for consumers to better understand the brands they work with, and brands, of course, to better understand the people who they have a relationship with. Chad, and it seems like as brands are kind of looking to create these new experiences in this new world, there's there's a lot of headwinds that they're they're having to face with regulations, uh, you know, the browsers, you know, Chrome and Safari, you know, deprecating cookies, things like that. If you don't mind, share your thoughts around things like data movement and availability in MadTech as, as some of these changes are happening. Where do you see that going? There are definitely headwinds and tailwinds, and I recently wrote some predictions you know, focused on data for 2022 and I think what marketers should do in relation to that. Where I think the biggest headwinds we're facing as an industry overall is uncertainty, and the uncertainty is created by the lack of a federal privacy law that creates a standard set of rules and regulations that all of us should operate in, in the collection of data, in the sharing of data, and in the transparency of data to us as individuals in the process. The second thing we're facing in terms of headwinds is absolutely the significant changes that some of the world's largest players in this ecosystem are putting on us. So sometimes they're called wild gardens, but of course, some of the biggest uh, companies that we work with that we help create amazing experiences for and deliver advertising against, whether you're a Facebook, whether you're a Google, you know, Amazon advertising and others, understandably in response to the need to have tighter controls over the data and how data flows, they are putting up what some people consider our walls due to privacy constraints and or, you know, issues they're trying to manage. And that, as you pointed out earlier, Dustin, the deprecation of third-party cookies, being able to transfer data freely on the internet, the normalization of cookies down into mobile ad IDs to consistently recognize devices and or individuals if that's married with personally identifiable information such as their email address or their name and physical address. And these changes 
are, I think, twofold. They're creating uncertainty on how we're going to solve for things in the open web because Facebook has always had a direct connection into their marketplace for advertising. They will continue to maintain you know, that high quality match rate that you can provide if you have consumer insights and, and data. But those changes are really, I think, making everyone first focus on what is our data strategy overall? What's most important for us to collect from consumers? How do we do it in a consent-based fashion? How do we anchor that in identity graphs so we have greater controls over it? And then again, as the things that we're doing and the industry is doing, how can we use our own assets and participate in things like the Unified ID 2.0 and then traverse you know, the information I have? into a universal ID that is pseudonymized that allows me to then exchange my data and information in a more secure and safe way with others, whether that's for an advertising use case, whether that's for a shared marketing use case or an analytical purposes. I think there's exciting things going on and there's so much change that customers are absolutely looking for help and evaluating a lot of changes that they're going to need to make over the next two to three years in order to maintain their competitiveness and you know create those better relationships with their customers. Yeah. So Chad, talking about the brand, you know, mastering their first party data, gathering more of it, having strategies, especially when they may not have even had a strategy previously because of their industry like CPG and such. That aspect of data sharing, if you look back 2020, 2021 really seemed to be kind of all about the CDP. But now you're seeing, you know, kind of that hype cycle moving more over to like clean rooms and the zero trust of sharing data capabilities. Do you see that as really being something that brands are going to latch onto, or is it more of, you know, just kind of industry rhetoric and are you going to see growth in that sector? Well, I think clean rooms today are simply a manifestation and a branding of data exchange solutions and services that have been provided for decades. Anyone who has worked uh, with Axiom, whether you're in a financial services vertical or travel and entertainment, know that one of the fundamental use cases behind co-branded credit cards was the safe exchange of data between co-marketing partners. And they happen across, again, manufacturers or suppliers and retail distributors. And neither company wants to share all their data information. And companies like Axiom have been bringing that together, literally trillions of records a year on behalf of two parties, anchoring them in a common identity graph, exchanging that data, respecting the opt-outs that have been collected from each of those parties into a universal opt-out for their co-branding campaigns. And then, of course, helping them execute those campaigns, whether it's in the digital world or across email or direct mail. And so that concept of a clean room, parties being able to share data with a neutral third party who has a set of technology that increases their match rates, can append incremental data and insights, and then execute those insights on their behalf, in a compliant way that, again, doesn't expose the data to each other, is really being branded in you know now these clean room technology solutions. And what happens, I think, and what's happening currently, as you said, in the hype cycle, is that there's some cool technologies, the ability to share data without moving it, huge improvements with what Snowflake has architected or others are trying to do using homomorphic encryption to really have a very high level of control or zero trust around the data exchange itself. That said, we have a lot of cool technology advancements right now, but we fundamentally lack a marketplace that are solving for use cases around data sharing. 
And as I mentioned in my you know, description, it has to solve for the entirety of the use case, not just the data exchange. Once the data is exchanged, is it going into an analytical mart that's being leveraged by specific data scientists for a certain outcome? Is it being executed in a campaign that not only has to reach advertising platforms, but actually has to be measured and the measurement impact shared across those parties where one may have the inventory and the other one may actually have the transaction itself. So there's a variety, I think, of use cases that will expand over the time. There's definitely cool technology uh, on the forefront that's emerging for us to use. But I think in general, there isn't a solid business case yet, other than people really trying to figure out how the ad tech ecosystem is going to exchange data. And that's such a big marketplace. Of course, it's a little bit of a gold rush to say you're going to solve for that when the cookie and the mobile ad ID and these real-time exchanges across the web have to change their technology footprint in order to operate. So we'll see what has to come. But it's a, a lot of technology change and definitely some business process changes on the way as well. Chad, I want to pivot a little bit from the kind of the technical constructs and kind of get back to, we said at the end of the day, it's, a, it's all about driving these incredible experiences, you know, between the customer and the brands. And yeah, I read a, an article, you know, recently on about Facebook and Meta about how, you know, I guess there's concern that basically what they're doing is that like they, they would build in the same biases um, that we see in the terrestrial world today or even the social network into the metaverse. So as we're looking to the future, how does bias you know become an issue in marketing and how do we maybe fix some of that, knowing that identity is a key, you know, plays a key role in that? Yeah, it's a great question. And it's absolutely something that all businesses should be focused on. The good news that I share in public with reporters and others is there has, especially in highly regulated industries, a tremendous amount of controls around the data that you can use specifically for marketing purposes. So whether it's Regulation B, the Fair Credit Reporting Act, FCRA, controls around HIPAA and the exchange of sensitive information and healthcare information and how that moves through an ecosystem. These controls are in place to, of course, ensure that negative outcomes don't occur in the process of deciding which audience should get which offer. And of course, it's absolutely there to remove bias and actually prejudice in those data sets. Businesses have to do more, though, than just what's already regulated across a specific set of industries. So one of the things we're doing as a company is partnering with higher education organizations for us, specifically the University of Illinois. And we're actually having the researchers in academia audit how we bring data assets together, the processes, uh, not just on the data build process and how the identity graphs function underneath that to have a high quality data asset. But then even, you know, phase two is going to be how bias is implemented into machine learning or artificial intelligence, especially as they're used on creating models. That when you're trying to scale data sets across massive populations, how do you limit the bias that is created through the machines as well? So it's something that's critical. It is absolutely a work in progress. And I will tie back to a common set of privacy laws that affect, again, all industry verticals or all individuals could also help ensure that bias and prejudice doesn't creep into marketing or the uh, delivery of credit offers or other ways that we simply interact with or offer, uh, make a decision on who gets to see what type of advertisement. Yeah, so you bring up there, you know, kind of a common privacy law. And certainly uh, you and Axiom have been big advocates for a national data privacy law. Can you give us a little sense of kind of where that stands today? Where is it in the process? How far along do you feel like that is? And, and do you see one coming in the horizon? 
It's a great question. And having active conversations almost on a weekly basis with our chief privacy officers, what's happening, of course, in Europe uh, for GDPR and even across the globe, whether we're speaking about China, you know, Asia Pacific overall, Latin America has an increasing amount of rules and regulations coming. I would say that for the U.S. specifically, unfortunately, there is probably a low chance of a federal law being passed in the next year with midterm elections coming up. Mm -hmm. And there'll be a lot of grandstanding. And I think we're already seeing that about how data should be managed and what should be allowed and what shouldn't be allowed. But I think the hard work, as it always takes in a bipartisan way to create regulation that does two things, creates the necessary controls that we need on industries to create a level playing field and ensure that we as consumers or we as people in the United States have the right to see what data is collected on us, transparency to how it's being used, the right to audit or change that information, or as we talked about at the beginning of the call, suppress that so that we can become anonymous to that brand again, is all part of rights that need to be normalized for all businesses. Because right now, the biggest challenge business faces in America and America faces overall is the economic impact that the consistent passing of individual state legislation is going to have. CCPA alone created almost a $2 billion impact. If you start to combine that across multiple states and multiple regulatory bodies, we're looking at a trillion dollar problem that's going to put American businesses on their back heels trying to focus on compliance versus focus us on innovation with all the headwinds that we're facing. So it is critical. It's probably not happening in the near term, but you know, as I've said before, data is critical infrastructure and we need to treat it as such and do the hard work that's necessary at the federal level so we can have a consistent set of practices for all businesses to adhere by. So Chad, you know, the last two years have really been a watershed for diversity, equity, and inclusion um, in the workplace. How important is it that our own Axiom Associates and others in the industry can fully embrace their identities in the workplace? To me personally, and I think to business overall and the success of our nation in the future, it's paramount. People need to be able to be their authentic self. Research has proven over and over again that Anytime we fundamentally as human beings don't believe that we can be our authentic selves, we spend a tremendous amount of personal energy trying to conform, trying to fit in, dealing with an internal voice as well as interactions, whether they're microaggressions and others, that actually don't allow us to contribute uh, fully as individuals in our personal lives and, of course, even in our work lives. And therefore, it's not only morally critical that we embrace diversity, equity, and inclusion, it just makes business sense. And so I personally don't see any arguments that in a country like America, where equality in the Constitution is guaranteed to all, and we have proven that over and over again, that there were no restrictions intended, although the world looked different 250 years ago, we know today that equality is, should be universal for every citizen and, of course, every member of our society. So it's paramount. It is morally right, and it makes business sense. So I'm not sure why anybody struggles with it, but that's my personal view. Thanks a lot for that view, and and certainly it's been great to see you know Axiom and, and our IPG family, you know, really pushing forward in that space. Absolutely. When we talk about brands and move outside of kind of the employee realm and then start looking at the consumer, their customers, and taking those same principles and, and trying to apply those, 
Do you see a way for doing that and how identity plays within that to help facilitate brands being able to bring that kind of DEI view into their engagement with consumers? It's a great question. I think it's it's really complex, so there's definitely no simple answer. But as I talk to brands and what we see in the public and when we talk with our customers, whether it's in quarterly business reviews and others, A, the topic of diversity, equity, inclusion, what are you doing? What are you learning? How does it manifest itself, not only internally in your company and how you relate with your associates, some people call them employees, but how does that then manifest itself to the value exchange or how you represent yourself to your customers. And so I think they are absolutely intertwined. And to me, I think it comes to the exchange of information. The more transparent you are and the more focused you are on your customer experience, the more willing you should be to A, of course, ask questions of your people, be curious of your customers on what their needs are and what they want, how they wanna be treated and what they care about most. And then again, collect that information And Jed Mole, our chief marketing officer, just put out a great article that says brands have got to spend more time ensuring that their customers and their prospects understand what data they're collecting and how they're using it to make these experiences. And I think if and when we do that and people are raising their hands and say, I would like to be treated by X or I am proudly representing A, B or C categories of individuals, whether that's based on their ethnicity, right, or based on sexual orientation or personal choices, or simply, as we said, I'm one of those people who personally believes in self-sovereign identity, and I want to be anonymous, and therefore, I need these things to be important to our relationship to make it easy to transact with you. But other than that, I kind of don't want any of these experiences from Uh you. All those things are meaningful, and and those things can only manifest themselves in reality If you can remember the decisions and the choices and the agreements you've made with people, respect those through the technology infrastructure and the exchange of the data uh, as you interact with individuals, you know, in person, in a metaverse, right, you know, through a kiosk or over a mobile app. So it is absolutely paramount because, again, all that data and information has to be anchored in an identity graph that is used not just for the personalization aspects, but more and more importantly, fuels, you know, the consent-based mechanisms and how data can and should be used or shared. Yeah, wow. So lots for brands to think about. And like you said, it's not simple and it's a complex issue all around. So super insightful and and thanks for sharing that. So unfortunately, we're already kind of getting near the end of our time. And I know we could talk about this for hours, especially with your affinity towards these topics, but we're going to have to move on. And so uh, we do like to wrap up kind of with just a standard question looking out to like 2035, what does the consumer engagement look like? Where do you see this heading? Do you see scarier kind of Orwellian type future or do you see brighter days ahead? Well, uh, 2035, we, we, you know, we used to think that um, 1999 was going to be a scary or, you know, Orwellian (laughs) time. Uh, And now we're in 2022. And and, uh, I won't mention the name of the book, a crazy book about what life was supposed to be like in 2022, you know, cast challenges on this dystopian future or what we could have. I would say that if we continually focus on the moral compass that we've had you know, as a country and and what we see around the world. And if we truly put people in front of profit and we create the necessary balances and control around, again, how data is used, what rights we have as individuals around that data, we will not have an Orwellian future where, you know, especially as it relates to marketing, where fair persuasion 
and the efficiencies that are created by being able to communicate with audiences who have a greater affinity for your products or services exists like it does today versus a world where we see mostly outside of the marketing area where it's not fair persuasions. It's actually manipulation and it's manipulation to create an outcome, whether that's a political outcome, whether that's an economic outcome, you know, or a more sinister outcome. Those are the challenges that any technology can enable in societies. And so I think, you know, as we all go forward as people, and of course, people acting within the context of the business, the more we can keep our morals on the forefront and leverage technology for good and ensure that there's transparency on how it's being utilized and draw, you know, not conflate everything, but in fact, draw the distinction around specific use cases and or around specific practices uh, and who has access to what, I think we'll be in a much better place over the next decade. And we absolutely won't be living in an Orwellian world in 2035 or so. Yeah, thanks, Chad. Such an insightful response to to a question we've been asking for quite a while. I'm so glad we recorded that because I'm going to go write that down and might use it a few times here in the future. But unfortunately, that brings us to a close for today's episode. Chad, thank you so much for joining us. You have such great insights, like I said, as a true practitioner. And I know our listeners will get a lot of valuable information out of today's episode. I want to thank all of our listeners for joining us. For information about the podcast and to find previous episodes, please visit axiom.com slash real talk or find us on your favorite podcast platform.